Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein for another conversation. We have here Max Eden. He is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute whose research focuses on education and federal policy. He is co-editor with Rick Hess of the Every Student Succeeds Act, What It Means for Schools, Systems, and States, which came out in 2017. He has an essay in the latest issue of City Journal on his visits to some classical charter schools out west. And I've asked him to join us to describe what he observed. Welcome, Max. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, what's nice is you get out there on the ground and you report directly what you see. Uh, Your essay opens with something very odd. It's a collective statement by the kids in the class about beauty. Uh, What was going on there? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, wait, no, no, uh, you know, weren't they, weren't they drilling and killing? Weren't weren't they rote memorization? Weren't they? (laughs) Uh, a lot of charter schools are like that, right? A lot of charter schools are built for the purpose of trying to provide a, a better education for low-income students, at-risk students. Uh, but that's not what Great Hearts Academy is. Its mission is to educate kids toward the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so uh, the piece starts with uh, this kind of call and response that I witnessed by a teacher. You know, call and response is a very common technique, right? Kids drift off task. How do you get them back on without having to yell at little Johnny? Uh, without singling it out, you kind of call something out to the whole class. And a lot of times it's kitschy. It's just kind of like a little chant back and forth. But at Great Hearts... Uh, what, what grade was this? Uh, this is in sixth grade. Uh-huh. Um, so not not babies, not adults quite either. And the the call is, students, what are we here to do? And they respond, we are here to learn to love what is beautiful. Wow. Uh, which is something that you don't really hear from students, something they don't really hear from teachers. Very few educational institutions have a have a beauty and truth driven ethos. You know, Max, I'm, I, I teach. I've taught at Emory University for thirty years. Uh, I teach a lot of freshman classes where you talk about general education a lot. These are students just a few months out of high school. And one of the extraordinary things that I have noticed in the thirty years of teaching is that the goal of enhancing one's sensibility, uh, developing one's taste, that, that's not on the radar at all. And I mean, even for the high achiever kids, the, the idea of the cultivation of beauty, the appreciation of high art, high culture, or wherever beauty may be found, they, they, don't, they don't think about that. They haven't been asked that question that you, that you saw in the classroom right there. No, it's, um, you know, for me, I had to get to sophomore year of Yale before I even question even occurred to me. And then you start to read a little bit of Aristotle and uh, the idea that there might be something called human nature, that there might be something called virtue. Let, let me ask a personal yeah. question. What did you major in at Yale? Uh, history. In history. Yeah. Um, but took a lot of humanities classes. Took a lot of humanities classes. Uh, outside of history. And what led you into the, the education policy world, especially in the, in the K-12? Uh, to be honest, it was just a, a coincidence. I was much more interested in politics, qua politics, for you know, late college and spent the first year and a half trying to kick around various campaigns to come to D.C. in the toe of some uh, rising political star never quite worked out. I had read work by EI scholars in college and I always thought to myself that could be an interesting place to, to go. And American Enterprise The American Institute. Enterprise Institute. Yes, where Rick Hess. Where Rick yes. Hess is, where I, you know, who I worked under for several years and kind of from whom I learned most everything that I know. And they were hiring for education. I went there and it turns out, unfortunately, to be such a such an open field because everybody who gets into education gets into education because they want to fix the world, right? They want to advance equity. They want to advance social justice. And it leads to a 
really, really single tracked group think around what the purpose of education is, which has absolutely nothing to do <laughs> with the cultivation of the soul, the cultivation of sensibility, the cultivation of state of, of tastes. It is purely about raising test scores and trying to boost college admissions prospects. Mm -hmm. So, and what well, what do you think the declaration of the love of beauty in sixth grade does for those kids? I think that the, the kids at the, in the public schools, you know, most public schools aren't getting, and many private schools are not getting. I mean, I think it it opens up the contemplation of of beauty, the contemplation of soul. Um, there's one, I. One thing from the the piece I just kind of want to read because it struck me so much. I Please. I asked one of the students, um, "How do you feel about your education at Great Hearts?" Very simple question. Didn't occur to me there was anything quite odd about it. And what she said was, "What really matters is the way my education has changed me." A lot of teenagers are very desire driven, and they're always asked to explain what they're feeling. So there, she denied the premise <laughs> of a question about feelings and goes on to say. Here they encourage us to follow a Socratic way of thinking. Start with your calculative faculties, then your spirited faculties. I sound like I'm regurgitating, but I'm not. And then desire is something that's subject to those faculties. Hmm. Um, How old was this kid? This was a senior in high school. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> um, clearly wiser than I. Uh, honestly, better read Certainly than I still I, at this point. When I was at that age, phew. Boy. Um, but she wasn't unrepresentative of the kids that I spoke to. They they had a wider vista of soul, and they were quite prepared to talk about their souls and to talk about their education as the formation of their souls, which is something that, you know, even I, who tries very hard to not be, uh, you know, kind of engrimed by the acid rain of identity politics, when I heard these students talking about the fact that their education is primarily a soul-building exercise, it almost made me feel weird. <laughs> you, you never hear anything like that. I'm like, are these kids are these kids brainwashed? Right. And then I had to check myself and say, no. Why would why would a young individual coming of age, thinking about his or her soul, be a trigger for me to think is this kid brainwashed? And these are not private religious schools. No, these are they're not private schools. They're public charter schools. They are right. open to, to anybody who wants to come. Right. Um, and in 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 Phoenix, where they founded. You know, there is one of these schools within a good 15-minute drive of basically everywhere in the greater Phoenix location. Um, Great, Great Hearts is, I, I think you listed 20, 27 schools? Yeah. How, how many? 27 schools in Arizona and Texas. Yes, is 20, they are. 22 in, in, in Phoenix and then seven in, in building in Texas. Mostly the San Antonio. Yeah, area. San Antonio, and they're trying to break into Dallas. Dallas. And, and maybe, maybe we'll, we'll take a side note. What happened... When Great Hearts Academies tried to go into the state of Tennessee, because charters have to work at the state level, yeah, and they can't be national. You've got to go through a state system. They tried to go into Tennessee. First of all, why did they try to go into Tennessee, and then what happened? Yeah, so they were they were looking to expand beyond Phoenix. They they knew that they were on track to kind of reaching a saturation point, which was their goal, and they wanted to try to expand into other states. It's unfortunately a hard thing for them to do because in most states, charter policy is oriented for the creation of schools that specifically serve low-income students, students of color, students trapped in failing schools. Tennessee used to be one of these states until 2012 where they passed a law to expand charter eligibility to all students. And so a group of parents, middle-class parents, suburban parents who just weren't satisfied with their kids' schools, learned about Great Hearts, reached out to them, said, can you come here? 
uh, were trying to secure grant money to get you set up for the state. And they did. They put in an application, and they were roundly rejected by the uh, by the Nashville Board of Education because the school would have been placed in a suburban setting in the first instance. The first school would have. And to them, that smack of segregation, um, you know, a lot of people might say that segregation is a, a legal thing. Are you purposely excluding some students? Uh, in this case, it would have been positioned at a point to serve students who weren't disadvantaged, which from the prospect of a lot of education reformers is, uh, is anathema. It's something that you shouldn't do. This, the purpose of these schools should be primarily to, to build up, lift up students who are struggling, not to offer students who are doing, quote-unquote, just fine, the opportunity for educational excellence. The Nashville School Board roundly rejected this application, uh, accusing uh, great hearts of effectively promoting segregation because it would have placed itself uh, in a middle-class, upper-middle-class suburb. And the state didn't accept this. The State Board of Education said to them, we deem that you have not uh, rejected this in good faith. You either need to accept this or pay about a $4 million penalty. And the school board said, we accept paying that penalty in order to keep these schools away from our students. You're kidding. No, um, because a lot, of, a lot of education policy is a kind of a zero-sum social engineering game. So anything that is seen to advantage students who are already advantaged must, in you know, the minds of policymakers, come at a cost to students who are disadvantaged. And you know, strictly speaking, there might be some truth to this when it comes to test scores, et cetera. It's an open question. Um, but that's not what Great Hearts is about. Great Hearts is about trying to offer kids an education that expands the view of their soul, which is something that the, <laughs> a lot of education reformers don't acknowledge as a valid concept. It, it is a very sad thing if the voters in that district are okay with that $4 million penalty. They'll pay it. Do you really want to have this school board making this, this kind of decision? Remarkable. Well, but then again, I mean, the, the way that these things are framed, right, do you, if you're a voter, do you want to support segregation? Do you want to do something that would, uh, you know, implicitly endorse institutional racism? These are, these are really profoundly powerful rhetorical tropes that kind of stop thought. They are. <laughs> and can be used as a political bludgeon. So yeah. I, I, I don't know that I could fault uh, a Nashville citizen if what they are presented with is a school is coming to your town that will increase segregation. I wouldn't want that. <laughs> right, right. Of course, of course. Well, when I, I visited some great heart schools in, in Arizona, and I mean, if they're, they're talking about these places as segregated by race, that wasn't the case at all. Those, in fact, I, I, I must have seen mostly, mostly Hispanic students. From what point I could, yeah, or at least, or at least half, or, or, or so. I mean, it just wasn't an no, issue. It it it, it, vary, it varies from school to school. On net, great hearts are pretty ethnically representative of the the communities that they serve. They are, you know, however, not quite economically representative of the communities that they serve. They do serve, uh, quote unquote, disproportionately non-poor students, right? And this is a <clears throat> a reasonable thing, given you have to get your kids there in the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have to kind of want this education in the first place, right. um, which doesn't doesn't occur to anybody. But at least, and you've got a rigorous curriculum that yeah. isn't going to work very well if you've got homes under various forms of economic and emotional pressure. Yeah, and it's if not, not chaos, and it's not going to work well unless you have a parent who's going to really proactively reinforce it, who's going to um, 
understand the value of it and make sure that you do two hours of homework a night. Is this why the, you, you mentioned this in the article, is this why Great Hearts, big charter network, which has had explosive growth in the last 10 years, we did have Robert Jackson on yes. uh, about a year ago, who, who is the research right academic director, I guess, of, of Great Hearts. But Great Hearts has exploded. The waiting lists are very, very long. Uh, but they are not as well known as the KIPP schools or as Harlem's success. Is that because those other charter networks are frankly focused on the disadvantaged? Yeah, they're they're explicitly kind of social justice, save the world, um, fix poverty organizations. And I think that, you know, not unreasonably draws a lot more philanthropic support and a lot more press attention than a school that's trying to help kids who don't quote unquote, need help, uh, get an education of the soul. I think right. that I would, that's something I would like to see change. They're still getting some good philanthropic support, but I think that, you know, that I, I, I f- do somewhat fear for their position long-term in the charter school movement because they are so profoundly countercultural. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. as charter schools have kind of veered more explicitly to the cultural left in recent points. I think that the, the contrast with Great Hearts will stand out more and could make them a target. There was just uh, hmm. it's slightly off track, but if you haven't caught this, I'd, I think it'd be worth you taking a little bit to look into, your, your listeners taking a little bit to look into. Yeah, There was a CEO of Ascend Charter Schools in New York City. Uh, charter School Network serves low-income students, gets very good results, and he wrote a an essay basically saying, I'm, I'm concerned that this rise in kind of ideolo- stulted ideology is getting to the point where, to quote, he quotes the New York City Department of Education, where we look at things like objectivity, respect for the written word, sense of urgency as white supremacy. And he, exp- he wasn't arguing this. No, he, he was worried. He was expressing concern yeah, yeah, yeah. that this is where it is. And then an anonymous, uh, <laughs> an anonymous, uh, poll goes up, an anonymous uh, kind of survey goes up saying like, we don't like this guy because he has said that objectivity is white supremacy and he is reinforcing white supremacism mm-hmm. and he was summarily fired, even though he didn't say that. He just said, I'm he's cons- gone. Yeah, yes, he's gone. Um, and, wow. and very few people within the kind of education reform space have uh, stood up to defend him, stood up to object to it. The the current in a lot of charter schools kind of has no anchor point against hard identity politics ideology. And mm-hmm. I fear that when, you know, as this drifts down to those schools, the whatever gains they're getting on test scores will be more than washed out by the the corrosive messages that the students are receiving. But Well, if, if they do take down uh, eventually schools like Great Hearts, what they are doing is going to build uh, an even bigger private school mm-hmm. network because the parents who are going to Great Hearts are very happy from what I've seen mm-hmm. with what's going on there. When you've got a waiting list of some you know, 12,000, 13,000 people, that's parental demand. Mm-hmm. They want it. And if, if, you're, if you're going to start casting this as in a form of reinforcement of racial victimization, uh, people are going to flee. They don't want to be, a lot of parents don't want to be around that. And they want to hear their kids talking about beauty. Mm-hmm. How nice is that to hear? And, and I'll say that 
middle-class kids on this score are terribly disadvantaged in the world today. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need this kind of curriculum. They need to have someone talk about something better than you know the mass vulgarity that we see out there in the, in the, in the public sphere. Uh, let me ask you, in the curriculum, uh, where does religion stand? Because I mean, charter schools have to be careful mm-hmm. about this. I mean, you can't you can't have uh, you can't have crucifixes on the walls of charter schools, right? Yeah. Uh, so where, where where do they? I mean, if you're going to talk about soul, spirit, uh, transcendence, then how do they how do they get around the the issue of mixing mixing what, church and state? Yeah, it it doesn't really come up, which is somewhat surprising because you one would think that to to anchor all these discussions, you kind of, you need the backstop of of human nature, which is somewhat hard to sustain intellectually without the backstop of uh, man. That is something that is created with a purpose, with a telos, and they they frequently reach there, but they don't go any further. I think that um, my my take is that amongst the the leaders of the network, there's a strong kind of traditionalist, social Catholic um, bent in kind of the way that they view the mission of their education, but it doesn't filter down mm-hmm. into the classroom almost at all, except that they do teach um, they do teach the Bible for a good half of the year, I think, or a quarter of the year. They teach Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy. They teach Mark, John, uh, Luke, perhaps. They teach Esther, Job. Um, they provide biblical literacy, mm-hmm. um, and that that fits into the curriculum as something that students will know, but they're never uh, explicitly encouraged to ponder, you know, whether Dostoevsky, when he, re- you know, as he thinks of himself as being, uh, you know, a, a Russian who is in tune with the fundamental questions of the fate of mankind and human nature, you know, they can recognize that, you know, backing that is his take on Rus- uh, Russian Orthodoxy, but they never really. Are encouraged to explore that directly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When they talk about, when they complain, when, when educators, progressive educators, complain, say, about teaching the Bible in high school, that this is verging on proselytizing, does anyone say to them, do you know that a student who studies a bit of the Bible, like the Exodus story in high school, goes into college and takes courses in U.S. history? that, you know, your, your general ed survey of U.S. history that goes back to the pilgrims and the Puritans and through, that their knowledge of the Bible is going to give them a great advantage over other kids in that class who've never studied the Bible. Because King James, mostly, shaped so much one of the language. I mean, Abraham Lincoln's speeches. King James is everywhere in those speeches. Uh, kids learned literacy in the 18th century, uh, where you had some of the highest literacy rates in the world, in fact, in, in the colonies and, and the early republic, they, 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 took, they took their text from the Bible and they studied reading in, in that way. It was just in the air that everyone breathed. Uh, do you say, you know, for purely utilitarian reasons, college readiness in literature and history and politics and in, in culture, in art, that Biblical, some biblical knowledge is going to make you uh, be start start the term, you know, ten yards ahead of the kid sitting next to you. What, yeah. do, they, what do they say to that? What 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 would they say to that to that response? They they just don't know 
that? Doesn't occur to them? Or do they say, well, the college curriculum needs to change too? I've, for better or worse, and perhaps for better, never quite had this conversation. Um, I, I, I suspect that they would say that it's it's not directly relevant. And you know, if if you were to ex- if you were to say offer um, the the added richness of exploring uh, the thought of Martin Luther King, the thought of uh, Frederick Douglass, the thought of a, a lot of black leaders as being informed by the Exodus story and the way that they see the story of their people as echoing kind of the ancient Israelites right, uh, right. and their, their release from captivity and their journey towards freedom and some degree of transcendence. I fear that they would see that as retrospective cultural appropriation. Okay. Uh, you know, it certainly it would have been Douglas appropriating the Bible <laughs> by that knowledge, but then it would be you appropriating Douglas by, <laughs> right. um, you know, invoking the Bible to explain his, uh, genius, which must be kind of ethnic and sui generis in nature. Right, right, right. Which is again, you know, sort of a sort of an abstract response, but it's it's fixed in them. They they've got a kind of canned reaction to that. And again, I, I think that you know, the parents who are going to see their kids go through the Great Hearts curriculum, they're going to see the results. Yeah, no, I mean, I've talked to I've talked to parents who have kids there who are freshmen, sophomores, who will say you know, both unashamedly and ashamedly that my kid is better read than I am. Yeah. That he knows more than I do. Yeah. And they um, love that. And they love that. I mean, part of them wishes that they weren't true. Part of them wishes that uh, they were better read than their kids, but they're thrilled that their kids have read all these things that they haven't. And they'll, you know, perhaps never have time to. Their kids already have by the time they're 16. Now, now I saw in the curriculum that these kids are doing Hegel in 12th grade. Mm-hmm. H- Hegel, Max? Hegel, uh, Aquinas, Dante, Dostoevsky. Yeah. And how, how do the kids respond to this? I mean, do 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 they have a big dropout rate? Yeah, the Great Hearts. They have a, a pretty substantial dropout rate. I mean, you have to want this education to do it. Um, yeah. And Arizona is uh, has a lot of school choice. So if you if you want a normal high school education, if you want to be an athlete. Uh, in some cases, if you want to game the college admissions process by being top 10% in your class and you're a smart kid, you shouldn't go to Great Hearts. You should go to a public high school where you can phone it in and get a scholarship. I would say that for Great Hearts, if if you have a, a, a student who is slipping and you try to you know give them the support and so on and just not working out, in a way you can say, you know, we've got 100 kids who want your spot. I mean, I know yeah. that's that they don't want to be... That's a little a little blunt. No, I mean my 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 sense. I think if you ask them directly, they would probably say we fight for every kid. Right. Um, of course. My takeaway from it is that they fight to a point, and then past that point, if they have to fight to keep a kid, then maybe the kid doesn't want to. If the kid doesn't want to be there, you shouldn't make him be there. Right. Um, where do you uh, where do you see the the where do you see in the next five years? Is is the message among these middle class parents? Is it moving down the income ladder so that, say, in the state of Arizona, mm-hmm. the the growth of great hearts, the demand that they see in in Texas, are they getting similar growth? Oh yes, it's a similar growth, similar wait lists. I mean, I mean, can <clears throat> can they can they make the argument to the politicians who may be more inclined toward favoring the the low income, uh, the disadvantaged? Well, we want them. 
how, how can you help us draw more of them in to our schools? Uh, is, that, is, that, is that something that they, they should be working on? Um, I, they might say yes. I would say no. <clears throat> I would say that um, they have strong demand already, strong, like st- demand strong enough to keep them growing as fast as they can grow. <clears throat> and the, the real demand, I think there's, despite that strong demand, I think that there's like <laughs> so much untapped demand amongst middle class parents who want something like this. And as uh, public education goes inexorably towards, uh, you know, kind of further implementation of racialist identity politics ideology, um, further towards a very prescriptive ideas about you know, human sexuality, human nature, um, you know, the more that parents realize, wait, at my, at my kid's schools, uh, my kid is going to be taught that he's a white supremacist and has no, nothing to be done about it because he's white, uh, or my four-year-old is going to be encouraged to explore an alternate gender identity. I think that uh, there will be an exodus of kind of small-c conservative middle-class parents from the public schools, and Great Hearts' best plan isn't to do what the other charter schools are doing and, and try to fix the world. It's to try to serve parents who are desperate and starving mm-hmm. and, and hungry for their kids to get uh, a kind of education that upholds their values or expands on their values rather than undercuts them. In Arizona and Texas, the, the public school officials and the teachers unions, they haven't been able to slow the, the growth. No, they're... How? How, how did they not... How, how did they... I mean, charters have hit a lot of bumps mm-hmm. around the country in different places. How did, how did Great Hearts get around that? Um, in Arizona, a lot of it has to do with the the way that their charter school law works, right? A lot of a lot of states, I can't recall Texas off the top of my head, but a lot of states have school districts who have to authorize charter schools, <laughs> um, and that was what you saw in Nashville. It had to be the school district who said, "Yes, I accept that you will come in and serve my students." <clears throat> in Phoenix, it's the state board of education, so the school district has no administrative leverage to reject or impede the growth of Great Hearts. And it's a pretty weak union state. So uh, Arizona is something on the order of 30% of all students are in charter schools. It's pretty well, it's pretty well baked in. And at the state level, that gives the governor more power? Um, I, mean, I mean, the governor of Tennessee couldn't do anything about No, the governor of the Tennessee district. couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, gives, it gives the governor, governor more power, but the governor's power is even then somewhat limited because it's, just a, it's an appointed charter board that makes these decisions. And okay. so. You know, over the longer run, the governor will be able to change the composition of that board, um, but he wouldn't, you know, have that much direct sway over accepting or rejecting charter school applications. So, so finally, for our listeners, Max, can you can you give just general a general description of a charter school? What what is it? What is a charter school? What is its relation to the other public schools? What are the rules of hiring teachers and staff? and selecting curriculum. Are they completely independent? Um, it will depend kind of from state to state. It will state. depend from state to state, locality to locality. I mean, <clears throat> a charter school is distinguishable from a traditional public school in that a traditional public school is uh, quote-unquote accountable to an elected school board, whereas a charter school is uh, accountable maybe to an elected school board indirectly or to any other number of institutions, and they operate by, by a charter, by a contract that says we will allow you to set up shop, we accept your application, you say that you want to offer this education, we maybe ex- uh, expect these results. And in Arizona, it's 
really open-ended and they grant 15-year charters and they don't really check in and they mm-hmm. and they accept a lot in other places it is a lot more pres- a lot more prescriptive in terms of uh you know what a school board will take what a state authorizing agency will take and do teacher union <clears throat> contracts apply uh for the most part no um, that, there's, that's one there's, of the there's, big there's never there's um, there's never a requirement that teachers union contracts be part of it um they're not kind of beholden to that in the same way that traditional public schools are. You see a handful of charter schools here or there that are unionized, but for the most part it takes place um, without that stuff. And the record of charter schools in this movement that's roughly, what, 30 years old? Maybe? Uh, 25, yeah. 25. Uh, the record is, is kind of mixed, mm-hmm. but the advantage, am I correct, in saying that the advantage is that the bad schools, the bad systems close. Yeah, they don't last, so they're 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 shaken out more more quickly than than say a bad public school would be. Yeah, and we see that um, we see that most markedly in Arizona, which is the you know the most liberal, the loosest charter school state. You see a lot of creative destruction, which makes some people uneasy. The thought that you might <clears throat> open up a school, take fifty kids, take hundred kids, hundred fifty kids, realize that nobody wants this, go to back from hundred fifty to fifty to fifty, and close down. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know. Students will only go there if the parents want them to, and in this case, uh, you know, they still have no have come nowhere near reaching the parental demand for this kind of education. Now, you 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 imply that that the local markets for for great hearts in Arizona and Texas are, are slowing down; they're almost saturated mm-hmm. uh, with them. Where, where where do you see something like great hearts in ten years? Are well, they going to get into other states? Well, in they're saturated in Phoenix. They still have a lot of growth opportunity in Texas. Um, right. They they want to be able to serve. I think something on the order of eighty thousand students in Texas, which, <laughs> given that they serve about, I think, fifteen thousand students in Phoenix and Arizona, would be a huge boon. Um, when I chatted with them, they're hoping to get into Florida, which I hope that they will be able to, because I would move down to Florida to send my kids to one of these schools. Mm-hmm. Past Florida, the only other state that they said. Kind of looking at the regulatory environment they could see themselves moving into would be North Carolina. And then past that, even though there are charter school laws on the books in I think 41 states, maybe 45 states, they only see four where the laws are open enough for them to be able to operate. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I forgot to ask you, do charter schools have to give the same kinds of tests, state-level tests, that public schools give? Yes, they do. So that, that that's part of you're really a public school operating in a different, but yeah. your students have to have to take the test so we can get comparisons. Mm-hmm. We, we can so look we can at see things. our charter schools doing better or worse than their peers. Yeah, All right. and and that's a big part of the the evaluation mm-hmm. of how they're doing and, and, and parents and 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 the 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 rest of the people. That are, is it embarrassing for a lot of the states when the charter school uh, test scores come out? Um, yeah, many times it is. <laughs> I mean, you look at you look at. New York City, uh, Bill de Blasio, Success Academies, and you see that those kids, <coughs> disadvantaged urban kids whose whose parents are the drive, who have the drive to really uh, try to hit out of the park, you find out that they can, that they can perform better than kids in Scarsdale, and it it appears as a pretty damning indictment of the traditional public schools right down the street. In the case of Great Hearts, they benefited from having high test scores off the bat, but they, uh, I haven't really kept on trying to raise those test scores, haven't aligned their curriculum to them. And, you know, parents see that as one signal of success. But I think even if they didn't have particularly higher test scores, parents would 
uh, just by reputation, know that that's where they want to send their kids. The article is Great Hearts, Great Minds by Max Eden, the latest issue, uh, August 19, uh, 2019 of City Journal. Thank you, Max. Yeah, thank you, Mark.